Today is the third and final message in our Lenten series, Prodigal, from Luke chapter 15. Mention the word prodigal in most spaces and places, and people will know exactly what you're talking about. They'll go right to this story, the story of a wayward son. They might not connect with the older son as much, but with the younger one who asked for his share of the father's inheritance and then went off to a foreign land and squandered it. The word prodigal has universal meaning. This Bible story has helped it become part of the vernacular. Kind of like Good Samaritan and Golden Rule. Also passages from the New Testament that have crept into the vernacular. This story of Jesus has three main characters, a father and two sons. Yes, there were others in the story, but those are the primary ones we're focusing on in this series. Two weeks ago, Amanda Lott set the historical and contextual table for us and then preached from the perspective of the younger son. We were challenged to hear the scripture read from the perspective of the younger son. And last Sunday, Matthew Hensley preached from the perspective of the older son. And today I'm inviting us to consider the perspective of the father in the story. The more that I listen to and read this story, I am convinced that it helps us address some questions like this. Why does God do certain things like God does? Why does God not do certain things? Meaning, why does God give us the freedom to deny Him, to do what we want? Why does God not just keep a tether on us and only let us get but so far? And I'm convinced that this parable is much more about a prodigal God than two sons who were lost. We'll try to unpack that a little later. Before we continue, I think that it's important for us to go back to the first three verses and hear them again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. You know that Jesus set out his journey to Jerusalem, his final trip to Jerusalem, and that's recorded in Luke chapter 9, latter, in the latter part of chapter 9. He's on his way to the cross. He knows his purpose. He knows his destiny. He's been trying to teach his disciples about that. They didn't understand it. I probably wouldn't have understood it either. But he knows where he's going. He's resolute. And all the while on the journey to the cross, he would visit with people, minister to people, talk with people, eat with people. And verse 2 says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's important to remember that the reason Jesus told this story in the first place is because the Pharisees could not stand that he ate with people whom society deemed unclean and unacceptable. 
Jesus welcomed sinners and not only welcomed them, but sat at table and dined with them. The implication was that Jesus preferred the outcast to the respectable classes. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law felt that this was unacceptable. In the Hindu religion, the people Jesus sat and ate with would be considered untouchables. They would be called untouchables. This echoes the charges that these same kind of leaders echoed or uh, hurled at Jesus earlier in his ministry. Do you remember when Jesus called Matthew to be one of his disciples? Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government, and they would go to their Jewish sisters and brothers and take their taxes, but they would overcharge them and then siphon off some of the top and give Rome what it was due. Tax collectors were immoral, unethical people. They were seen as traitors to their own people, exploiting fellow brothers and sisters for the benefit of Rome. And after leaving behind his former occupation, Matthew followed Jesus, and then the Bible tells us that he had a big party and Jesus was invited. Luke says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said, because he attended this party, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Later, Jesus received similar accusations. In Luke 7, 34, for example, Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's speaking to the Pharisees and tax collectors, the words that they, that they have said to him, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet on another occurrence, Jesus was at the home of a Pharisee who had invited him for dinner, perhaps to get to know Jesus a little bit and try to figure out what was going on, or maybe to see where he would be next. I'm sure that there was some motivation for that beneath the surface. But nonetheless, Jesus was even at the home of a Pharisee. And a woman who knew, who found out that he was there came, and she began to weep at his feet. And she washed his feet with her hair and the tears, and then broke open a jar of perfume and poured it over his feet, anointing him with this expensive perfume. Over and over again, religious leaders harassed and ridiculed Jesus for associating with and eating with people who were considered outcasts. When we get to Luke 15, Jesus hear them, hears them muttering the same thing. Muttering can be translated murmuring, like when people try to talk behind you, behind your back and think that you don't hear, but you really do. If Jesus was the bus driver, he could hear who was in the back seat. Jesus, fully God, fully human, knew their hearts without them even saying a word. They were muttering amongst themselves, making these same accusations, grumbling, complaining. And I believe just as Jesus went in and turned over the tables in the temple because of the abuses there, that Jesus had had enough. And instead of lashing out at them, which would have probably been what I would do, Jesus told some stories. He caused them to think. Notice how in verse 3, Luke reports it. 
This man, I'm sorry, in verse 2, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Not these parables. Jesus told them this parable. Honestly, I have never paid attention to that word. The little word, this. I have always treated this passage as three separate parables. The parable of the shepherd who had lost the sheep and left the ninety and nine to go find the one and brought it back and there was a great celebration with all of his friends. And the second parable of a woman who had lost one of her ten coins and swept her entire house clean so that she could find it. When she found it, she rejoiced. I imagine there was a great celebration amongst her friends that she found her lost coin. And then the third parable, a man who had two sons. One went away and squandered the family wealth, and the other was arrogant because he couldn't accept that the father had grace toward the younger son when he came back home. Three separate parables. But in studying this one verse and this little word within that verse, verse 3, it helped me to see perhaps that this is one big parable with three stories in it. You can decide. But listen to what Fred Craddock says. He says that Jesus spoke this parable and then told three stories, meaning that there is one parable comprised of three stories. In each story, something or someone is lost and found. Again, a lost sheep and a shepherd finds it. A lost coin and a woman searches and finds it and two lost sons. All three of these stories within the greater parable are pointing us to a way that we can understand the character and nature of God. And in, so, in, in, in saying these or telling these stories to the Pharisees and teachers, I believe that Jesus is helping them to see the very reason why he dines with sinners and people who are deemed unclean. And that is because the Father cares deeply about them. In his book, Return of the Prodigal Son, which Amanda referenced in, her first, in the first sermon, author Henry Nouwen points out that this parable and its three stories reveal the heart of God. He writes, For most of my life I have struggled to find God, to know God, and to love God. I've tried to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, to pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and avoid the, vin- the many temptations that decimate my, dissipate myself. He writes, I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair, or disrepair. Now I wonder whether I've sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question, he writes, is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by God? Not how am I to know God, but how can I be known to God? How can I let myself be known to God? And finally, the question, not how do I love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God, the one who made me? God is looking, now and writes, into the distance for me, trying to find me and longing to bring me home. In all three stories which Jesus tells in response to the question of why he eats with sinners, 
he puts emphasis on God's initiative. God is the shepherd who goes out looking for the lost sheep. God is the woman who lights a lamp, sweeps out the house, and searches everywhere for her lost coin until she has found it. And God is the father who watches and waits for his children, turns and runs to meet them, embraces them, pleads with them, begs them, and urges them to come home. Now and says in his conclusion, God wants to find me as much as, if not more than, I want to find God. And this begs the question, if God desires to find me, am I worth looking for? And the simple answer to that is yes. But sure is hard to believe, isn't it? Can I accept that I am worth looking for? Can this younger son accept that he's worth looking for? Can this older son accept that he's worth looking for? That's the honest truth. We are worth looking for. I believe this parable, this big parable, and its three stories are about a sheep that was found, a coin that was found, and two sons who were found. All were found because one did not give up on them. I believe that's the lesson Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They had gotten caught, so caught up in religious regulations and obeying the letter of the law that they forgot what grace was all about. And I'm thankful that this series of stories helps us to see the grace of God. You and I are worth looking for. I want you to Pretend you've got a mirror. Hold your hand up like my preaching professor, Chuck Bug. He used to talk to his hand all the time. Hold your hand up and look. Pretend it's a mirror and say, I'm worth looking for. Say it out loud. I am worth looking for. Say it again. I am worth looking for. One more time. I am worth looking for. We find our value and worth in God. We are created in the image of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, reminds us in the psalm, Psalm 139. That is the fundamental truth of our identity, that we are created in the image of a loving God. We are worth, and we are, we are worth being found, and we are worthy of being found. I believe our, blessed, our belovedness preceded our birth. You and I were beloved before your Father in heaven, brought you to this earth. You are beloved because you belong to God from all eternity. God loved you before you were born. He will love you after you die. In Scripture, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is a very fundamental truth of our identity. This is who you and I are, whether we feel like it or not. Sometimes we feel that God is way far off and just give up on us. And other times we feel that closeness. Whether we feel far off or close, God loves us with an everlasting love. We belong to God from eternity to eternity. Life is just a little opportunity for us during the few years that we have to say to God, I love you too. And I believe this is the scandal of love. 
in the first part of the message, I talked about some of the questions of why God does some things the way God does and why God doesn't do other things. The shepherd went after the sheep, left the 99, went after the one. The woman went after the coin, swept the house until she found it. But the father stayed home. The father watched his son go off with his share of the inheritance, which was probably a third of the estate, and didn't go after him. He didn't have a lasso around him. He didn't have a GPS tracker on him. He had no idea where he went and when he might come back, if ever. Why would Luke tell us that a shepherd went after a sheep, which is just an animal, and a woman swept the entire house looking for a coin, which is just a piece of metal, and the father didn't go after his son. He remained home and he waited. Day after day, he would go out to the road and look for his son. He never gave up on him. But there he was at home running the family business. I imagine that he went out to the mailbox every day to see if there might be a letter there for him from his son. I imagine that at night he listened to see if there might be a knock at the door or a word from a messenger or somebody to say something about his son. Imagine the grief that the father felt thinking his father, his son had died or was in some dark prison somewhere. I wonder why the dad didn't put forth the same effort as did the shepherd of the woman. And I believe the answer is this. Love is like that. The love of God includes enough grace and enough space. There is enough grace to receive and to forgive and to restore. The father loved that son so much that he was willing to let him have free will to make his own decisions, even if they weren't the best. The father knew that this young man wouldn't make good choices, but the father couldn't enable his son, couldn't go everywhere he went. It was a point at which we have to raise our children up and then trust that God is going to lead them in the right way. And that's what love does. And I believe that's what the father did in this story by allowing his son to, to have the share of the inheritance and to go. But that does not negate the love the father had for his son. And it does not negate the fact that he waited for him every day to see if he came down the road. And then that one day, he looked off in the distance and he saw his son coming home. And the son had been rehearsing all of the things he had memorized in the pigsty and the things he would say to his father and to beg for father's forgiveness and all of that. And he started his speech and the father just hugged on him and kissed him, kiss, 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 and uh, stopped where him what, with his uh, train of thought and said, bring, bring the, the best robe and clothe him and put on the signet ring, a symbol of his inheritance, and give him shoes that are a symbol of uh, self-worth and prosperity and success 
and let's slay the fatted calf and have a party because my son who was dead is now alive. My son who is lost is now found. He is home. The father's love had enough grace and enough space. Perhaps this third story in this trilogy of parables should be called the parable of the prodigal father. The word prodigal means to be exceedingly or recklessly wasteful, extremely generous or lavish, extremely abundant. And yes, the young son took the inheritance and went off and was extremely wasteful with it. But the father was extremely wasteful with his love and grace to his son. Prodigal is to be exceedingly or recklessly wasteful, extremely generous or lavish, extremely abundant. And I'm reminded of what John writes in 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us or has wasted on us or has been exceedingly and, and, and recklessly generous with us that we should be called children of God. You are a child of God. I am a child of God. Never forget that. Please don't look for your self-worth on the internet, young ladies. There are all sorts of Photoshop young ladies on the internet, and you look at those uh, uh, people and you think, how did they look so good? Uh, There's lots of airbrush going on there. Please do not hold yourself up to those kind of people. You are a child of God. You are created in the image of God. You are valuable. You are worthy of being found. Don't compare yourself to someone else. Just be you as God has created you to be. The Father points out in the story, points out that our Heavenly Father loves us so much that He's even given us the freedom to deny Him. God has given us the free will that we may reject God, but that does not mean that God will not wait for us and desire for us to come home. Let me share you a personal story. As I was preparing for today, I was thinking about what this father felt like in the story. What it felt like when his son left and when he dealt with the older brother. And what it was like for the younger one to come home and the joy and the celebration. And I'm reminded of when I was 10 years old and my mom and dad got divorced. My mom and dad both got remarried. My brother Kevin and I lived with our mom and stepdad And every other weekend, we would go to our dad's house about two hours away. We met at a rest area where we would get our suitcases and put them in dad's car and go to his house. And then we would meet mom back at the rest area, put our stuff back in. Sometime at the end of ninth grade, getting ready for 10th grade, my dad's company phased out his job, and his choice was no job or a new job with the same company in Mississippi or Tampa, Florida. 
And he told me that he could not bear to be that far away from me and my brother, so he chose Tampa, which was about an eight-hour trip. The challenge was that the new job that he was taking with the same company required him to go to this school, and he would not be able to see us for some nine months to a year. If you've ever had a spouse in the military or a child in the military, you know what that's like. Others of you who have had to be away for long periods of time, you know what that's like. If you've sent a college, a young uh, high school graduate off to college, you know what it's like. And I'll never forget that last day when we had to meet our dad at the rest area, or our mom, dad, we'd been at his house and we went back to the rest area, put our stuff in the big red station wagon that had the seat facing back so you could make fun of the people behind you. You remember that. Google it if you're too young to remember. And then it was time for us to leave. And I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. I'll never forget to look in his eyes. And I'll never forget that he sat there in the parking space as we pulled off, knowing he wouldn't see us for a long time. And he made the sacrifice because he knew that he had a mortgage to pay, child support to pay, and family to support. And he sacrificed for us, even though he knew it would mean being separated for a long time. And I will never forget the look on his face when he came to pick us up for the first time after all that time had lapsed. It just reminds me of what love is and how much this father loved both of his sons. I never doubted my dad's love for me. I've doubted God's love for me sometimes, and I'm grateful that my doubt doesn't overcome his love. His love has enough grace and enough space. Love's like that. Pray with me. Thank you that your grace is greater than our sin and that your desire to find is greater than our desire to be lost and that you have created us in your image, in your divine image, and that our worth and value are in you. Let us not forget that. Speak to our hearts as we respond uh, to you today, God. If it's a response to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord and to be baptized, have your way. If it's a response simply to come and pray, have your way. If it's a response to come and unite with the body of people at Huguenot Road Baptist Church, Lord, have your way. In the name of Jesus, amen.